Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodi. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Everybody, this is David, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. You know, I had to think a little bit about what to use today for the title of today's show. Uh, the first title was Sooner or Later, Everyone Fails, the 238-day threshold of World War II military psychiatry. But, you know, I ditched that and instead went with what one question predicted emotional breakdown better than any other. So as you can kind of tell, we're going to talk today largely about an article uh, published by John Apple in 1999 in the American Heritage Magazine. John Apple was a psychiatrist in the military during World War II and also a researcher of battle fatigue. So let's start out today with a few anecdotes. Um, my first anecdote is, you know what, we've had a string of kind of severe weather here in um, southern Wisconsin lately, and I was thinking back to my college days. Um, one of my friends uh, that lived in my college town had graduated a couple of years uh, before I did um, and, and, and bought a uh, home in the town, um, actually outside of town. So he bought a home outside of town. And uh, whenever there, there was severe weather, okay, you know, it, they would sound the tornado sirens. Well, now, nowadays it kind of urge you to purchase those weather radios and, and they kind of um, have done away with, with tornado sirens, at least in, in Wisconsin. I mean, they're still here, but but if you're rural, especially, they're saying, you know, purchase these weather radios and then they'll sound the alarm if there's severe weather um, in your area. But, uh, you know, so we're talking back in maybe 1994, 95-ish. Um, so my friend um, who lived outside of town uh, whenever severe weather would come through, and there was there was like this this group of homes of maybe like ten twelve homes in in his there was like a little subdivision along um, the Wisconsin River, and uh, anyway, severe weather would come through, and it was before they had the you know the really the storm radios, and um, you couldn't hear the town or the city. There was a nearby city, you know, just a few miles away, but you couldn't hear the sirens. So you know. When I grew up, whenever there was severe weather, they would do the siren. Um, and that would be your indication that, you know, either there was a, you know, very severe weather, tornado, and you needed to head downstairs. Now, the house that I grew up in actually had a bomb shelter built into it. It was built in the, the sixties, the home and had, um, yeah, like this 18 inch thick, walls, ceiling, you know, blast door, the whole deal built into this, this house. Uh, my, my parents did, you know, since move from that house, but yeah, you didn't have to worry about a tornado too much when you could go downstairs into the blast uh, shelter. But anyway, so my, my friend, um, you know, from college decided that uh, he was going to take on the role of alerting everybody in the neighborhood when there was a s severe thunderstorm. Um, or a tornado warning. Um, so what he did, so he went to a flea market, a, a large flea market, and bought an air raid siren that somebody, you know, must have claimed off of, you know, some uh, municipal building. And this thing was probably from the 40s or 50s or whatever. So he he bought this and uh, takes this air raid siren. And the guy's Okay, to make the story kind of make sense, the guy is an electrician by trade. That's what he does. So he has this um, tower, you know, the, the antenna towers. Um, like, you know, you, you saw these more in the country than in the city, but antenna towers before satellite dishes, and, and they would go up and then they'd have your little, um, you know, multi-prong thing on top that would get your, your television reception and, and stuff like that. Well, anyway, he had one of these in his backyard, and... The thing went up probably, you know, like 50 feet. Um, so what he did is he mounted this siren on this pole. <laughs> Again, he's an electrician, so it's professionally done. 
you know, so the siren is up maybe, you know, 40 feet. And uh, he takes it upon himself then, okay, to activate this siren and and this air raid siren, you know, you know, it's a tornado siren, basically. Whenever there's really severe weather or a tornado warning um, for his area. Now, you know, whatever township he lives in, and, and I, I don't know the rules and regulations, I'm assuming... Uh, it's kind of frowned upon to take that uh, into your own, you know, hands of of putting up an air raid siren on your on your own property and, and kind of activating it um, per your discretion. But he's done that for the last twenty years. <laughs> still does it today. Like I saw him not too long ago, and I'm like, yeah, there's the air raid siren. Still use it. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Somebody has to, and apparently his neighbors appreciate it. Um, I don't know if anybody said anything, but, you know, uh, very interesting, very interesting. But, yeah, only activates it when there is, you know, and now the Doppler radar stuff has gotten so sophisticated that it, it can almost zoom in, you know, when they go on TV, like, to your street. Like, it's going to hit on your street, like, you know, heavy hail in two minutes or whatever. So, uh, but I have to laugh a little bit because it's one of those things when he initially did it, I thought, ooh, this will this will last maybe two or three times he'll do this, and then someone will report him or the, the township will say, like, no, you have to take that down. But 20 years strong, and, and I'm guessing uh, it'll probably keep going. I want to thank uh, Larry Roberts, the host of Readily Random Podcast, for having me as a guest on his podcast last week. So it is episode 14. You can go to readilyrandom.com, readilyrandom.com. And Larry does a very extensive workup for all of his guests. And um, I, I commend, I mean, he did a lot of work ahead of time gathering information about uh, projects I had um, participated in and and. Very, very thorough. It, it was one of the best interviews that I've, interviews or discussions, I guess, that I've partic- participated in um, through podcast or radio. And lately I've been doing, you know, maybe one or two a week, um, kind of throughout the world. And by far, I, I listened to this um, and, and people had contacted me and said, wow, that was really a terrific podcast and the credit goes to to Larry um, for facilitating that and for what he brought to that he he has I think 25 years of martial arts experience so has a deep depth of knowledge and situational awareness which of course is in my wheelhouse working with safety so it was a natural fit uh, that we were able to bridge off a number of, of um, scaffolds to, to support our main discussion on safety. So again, it is the Readily Random podcast. You can go to readilyrandom.com, listen to the shows um, that Larry has. And again, he puts a lot of time and effort into being very thorough. Uh, there are shows that I download and listen to. He has, um, I think this week coming up, um, someone in, in law enforcement specifically in, uh, who works with uh, visual identification of quote-unquote tells that people give um, and also co-authored a book um, with with poker having to do with watching um, what the opposition is doing you know like how where their hands are positioned and what you know, any any pattern behaviors are doing where their eyes are looking at certain times and and all of the the um, nonverbal communication and I did, I've done some presentations on that, some professional presentations on that. Now I, I had to research it and my presentations, um, were very kind of entry level. You know, it was, it was something fascinating. I remember in my research that if you were, you were to give somebody bad news, there was actually, um, a better side to do that from, again, you know, it's either left or right. I, I, I don't know. I don't have the research, um, available uh, immediately in front of me, but there was actually a side that if you were on the one side of a person, when you delivered this news to them, um, they handled it better than if, if you were on the other side because of the way that the, the brain would process. And 
I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. Now, the guests that Larry is going to have on, you know, has extensive training and, of course, has published in this area. So far beyond anything that I've done, but the work that I did in that really was fascinating. Um, so I'm certainly going to be uh, tuning into um, that show, which will be number 15 on the readily random um, uh, dot com, readily random dot com. It'll be uh, episode number 15 uh, for the the uh, law enforcement professional who's going to talk about the the quote unquote the tells. So I uh, really enjoyed that show. It, it, it's delivered at a. Larry, first of all, excellent job editing. It's about, you know, 50 minutes long, delivered at a fast but um, very, f- f- I guess, fun, entertaining pace. We cover um, a, a ton of, of, in, of information. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, I always appreciate when I can go back and listen to a podcast and, and I learn something from it too. Um, you know, that it's just not information I'm putting out. It's information then that the person who is, is hosting the show is, is very astute to, to, you know, bring in new information and, and, um, personal experiences. So, I mean, I, I, I really learned, uh, much from the show. You will too. So again, uh, check out readilyrandom.com. And I, I strongly suggest it's one of the podcasts I, I follow. I go in and I download. Um, I do every week. You guys know it. Okay. The safety doc. I, I don't watch what, you know, you could, you know, this about the safety. I don't watch TV. I, I don't listen to the radio. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not into any of that mainstream rhetoric filled hype, you know, in all the media and things that just have to be produced for mass scale. I go in and I pick out my content that I want to listen to each week. I do my research. Um, you know, you're not going to find me on Facebook and, and things like that. You find me on Twitter and, and I've got the webpage and stuff like that. But, um, I go out and I find very solid content, um, it, which informs me, makes me better. And I think that's what you do when you, when you listen to this show. I mean, we've had phenomenal numbers for the safety doc, um, show in, in, in the last month. So we continue this upward trend, but I, we're, uh, well over a hundred thousand Twitter impressions which is a record for June. Um, you know, we, we had, we were smashing records on downloads of episodes. Um, you know, things are, things are really taking off. So definitely I appreciate all of you. You know, the audience is, is rooting, you know, for, for this. And I'm, you know, when you're done listening to a show like this, you can have a discussion with somebody and you can share some new information. And it's also going to help you with introspection and the way that you safely handle life every day and keep the lives of those around you, of, of, the, of your loved ones safe. So, um, Hey, you know what? Contact me if you are interested in being a guest on the podcast. Um, or if you would like to have me be a guest on, on your podcast, uh, feel free to get, to contact me. You can find me at safety PhD on Twitter or else just go to safetyphd.com. And my contact information is there. So today, again, we are talking about uh, what one question predicted emotional breakdown better than any other. This comes out of a study uh, by John Apple, a military psychiatrist. A lot of this is going to come from kind of World War One and World War II. Um, I have looked at subsequent, you know, articles and studies to also scaffold this to present day. So for those of you who weren't aware, uh, June 27th uh, was National PTSD Awareness Day or Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Awareness Day in the United States. Um, That's rather recent. I think it was 2014 that that officially became um, PTSD was was given an awareness day. So... um, I listened to an interview that was done, um, I think it was 2014 with, uh, President George W. Bush. And I, I was, I was amazed. I think it was, um, let me see. It was on Good Morning America. They had a discussion and I was really moved by his, his passion in the work that he has done, um, in, in helping, um, veterans, uh, readjust to um, 
you know, life post-military. And I think it, it again, it's one of those things where I, I will honestly say that my, my perception of the, of him, you know, of President George W. Bush, uh, changed after that interview. Not, not that I had this negative per- perception, but, um, it was just listening solidly for an, an hour of a man talking about his passion to help um, soldiers. I mean, on a grassroots level to actually get to know them. Um, and through his organization, it, it, it is the George W. Bush Institute. Um, it's the military service initiative of the George W. Bush Institute. Um so there's a number of stories of, of yeah, he, you know, getting to know, um, uh, soldiers that have returned, um, from, from combat and what President Bush, and again, this was such a genuine, um, it, it was just like listening in on a conversation of someone, the passion and the knowledge and, and just his, his warmth and, um, dedication to doing this. This w- was it. Really, it really was moving. I listened to it a few times. And um, anyway, uh, ha- if you have an opportunity, go in and Google. You know, President W. Uh, George W. Bush and um, his uh, PTSD presentation on Good Morning America. I think that was a couple of years ago. But again, yeah, it was 2014. Um, but anyway, what? The president had said, is, you know what, let's get rid of the D. So instead of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, let's just, let's change it to post-traumatic stress injury. Um, And the reason he said that, he said, I'm quoting, is we're getting rid of the D, he said. Uh, PTS is an injury. It's not a disorder. The problem is when you call it a disorder, veterans don't think they can be treated. So again, um, really moving for me, and I would agree. I think the term PTSD and even this PTSD Awareness Month, um, it's it's we've evolved beyond that. Um, so instead of again PTSD, I think it's um, post. I I would refer to it as post traumatic stress injury. I would I would, and, and that's you know that that's going to be exactly how I will refer to it ongoing. Um, you know, disorder versus injury. And I think, um, that is a very appropriate, um, way to, to describe that. Um, so I'm going to talk today about, um, some important military, um, psychiatric information that came out of World War II, also World War One, And, and some of these things are going to really surprise you. Okay. And I, I did some research, um, so I, I have several pages of documents in, in front of me. I did a lot of research to develop this discussion. And the, I, I learned a lot, folks. I mean, I didn't know a number of these things that I'm going to share with you. And I'm going to point those out as we go on. And I think your awareness of these is, is, is going to be eye-opening, too, especially if you have relatives who have served in the military. I have a neighbor um, who served in the um Served in Iraq, uh, several tours early in the Iraq war. Um, and yeah, um, you know, I, this helps me better to, to understand, uh, when he returned his adjustment back, um, into, I guess, you know, a non-combat, you know, scenario and then, and then helping to give me a better context for, um, Kind of identifying maybe some of some of the things that he went through. I, I know um, firsthand it was it was a tough transition back for him. Um, so anyway, let let's talk. So there is an important lesson that came out of military uh, psychiatry in World War II. In World War II, looking at psychiatric collapses of individuals, okay, primarily on the Western Front. The conventional view was that there was something wrong with those soldiers before they even showed up in the army and that a healthy individual could endure combat essentially indefinitely and then 
you know, people had referred to that as, as shell shock early on and later um, as combat fatigue. But so, so let's talk about this. Okay. So you're saying, you know, that combat fatigue is a manifestation of a pre-existing condition in a military context. So basically, if you, if, if you suffer combat fatigue, um, that condition was inherent to you from the day you were born. Okay. And the military had during World War II, World War One, but more in World War II, um, extensive screeners to, to try to prevent people from entering the military that they felt would, um, not be able to hold up to the, the, the psychiatric themed rigors of war. Um, and basically if you did, succumb to combat fatigue, then it was just the fact that you got through this screening process, um, undetected, you know, that this, this, this was there all along. So how do we, so let's look at that, you know? Um, and, and this is, this is really, I don't know. Um, I look at this and the, the belief, the belief, okay. Flat out folks, the belief during world war two was a weakling soldier one who hadn't been screened out um, just needed, you know, more motivation. I'm like, here is why you are fighting this war. And, and, you know, we can motivate you to, to, you know, see the purpose and overcome, you know, your, your anxiety or this combat fatigue or whatever. It's just a matter of motivation. You're just not motivated to fight. Um, and also they're viewing this as, you know, this pre-existing condition, like if you quote unquote cracked, I'm, I'm using some of these terms. I'm not trying to be dis- disrespectful. That is not the intent at all. I'm being very much talking about the moment of, of what the perceptions were. Um, if you cracked, it was a flaw within you. It was a flaw within the person. It wasn't a fra- flaw within the system. It wasn't the fact that you were in such a chaotic, sustained aggregate days of combat it wasn't anything to do with that okay although it really was but the the perception was nope this was a flaw within the person um, this was a person that should never have passed through the screening process somehow they did and now they yeah um, have combat fatigue and but um so here here's what the military did so obviously this flaw within a person um you know, later what was was proven to be to be a false premise. But so what the military did in World War Two is their approach to this, you know, because you had a lot of very anxious soldiers and a lot of soldiers who were entering. You know, you're talking about, you know, 18, 17, 18, 19 year old young men, um, you know, stateside. And, and then they get thrown into to heavy combat situations. Um and, and just the, 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 the change in that from, you know, we talked about earlier the Taurus. Okay. And, and I think the previous podcast, we talked about the Taurus of, of kind of your day to day, you know, so these might have been, you know, young men who would have gotten up, uh, milked cows, you know, done chores and, and, and whatever. And, you know, had a day to day routine. And all of a sudden that's gone. And you're exiting out of that into kind of chaos until you, you settle maybe somewhat into a new Taurus or a new routine, which in and of itself is, is much, um, uh, there, there's much more variation in that and much more, more chance for that at any one moment to flip into a chaotic situation. So, um, so what did the military do? So we World War II. Okay. And they're realizing, you know, we have a lot of soldiers who are the motto, is more or less, I'll go if I get drafted. Like, I'll go if I have to go. Um, so this is, you know, from, from the psychiatrist uh, John Apple, he was talking about, um, you know, let's do more propaganda, okay? So as a psychiatric liaison to the information and education, i.e. I and E division, interesting information and education, Really, you know, probably more not information education as much as propaganda and motivation. Um, so he's saying, I took on my first project, helping make five movies in a series entitled Why We Fight to be shown to recruit. So I went on YouTube 
And you can do this. Go on to YouTube and just type in Why We Fight Plus World War II. You'll find these Frank Capra videos. Now, Frank, you know, Frank Capra, you know, was like, you know, like the Steven Spielberg of, of the present. Um, so just, just, you know, a, a very established, um, uh, you know, film, film, you know, producer. And so he, you, you can see these videos, these series of videos, and they're about 40 to 50 minutes in length. And, and what they do is basically say, and they're scary. I mean, if you watch them today, um, and, and imagine you don't have the context. This is, you know, World War II. You don't have the context of having the internet available and TV, um, and media. And not that TV and media is going to give you a, a rich experience of the world, but, um, what you're being shown in these videos might be the first knowledge you really have of like what Japan is or, or Italy or Russia, Germany, whatever it might be. Um, so it's again why we fight and it's very very you know strongly put together so um you know to to try to mot- to motivate you and to basically you know lay out this rationale for you know if if you don't rise to this occasion um the country's going to fall and and this is what it's going to be like and um so anyway Dr um Apple said I recall discussing id, superego, and ego with the experts making the films, a Harvard professor of sociology, a professor of psychology from Yale, and Ted, I think it's Giselle, uh, G-E-I-S-E-L, um, or Dr. Seuss. Um, again, Dr. Apple quoting, I said that the soldier's superego would tell him it was his duty to fight. His ego would convince him fighting was a good idea, and his id would arouse his emotions, his fear, his anger. Thus did Sigmund Freud enter the fray on the American side. We enlisted the help of Hollywood, and the films were made and shown throughout the Army. So again, go in, folks, and do a YouTube search and check some of these things out. Um, in modern day to watch these are absolutely frightening and then try to place yourself back into literally, you know, like a, a, a 18 year old, you know, on a farm, you know, raised on a farm and, in, in, you know, rural America and going to the theater and, and seeing one of these videos, just the impact that they, that might have. Um, it, it, it's, it's really, it's really frightening. And I think we overlook how the America, American propaganda system, um, really got into play, um, heavy during, during World War II. And, you know, it reminded me a lot of, of a couple movies. One, one was Rambo. So we all, well, not all, but I mean, for those of us that had w- watched Rambo with Sylvester Stallone, um, you know, that was a movie where it was definitely portrayed as West versus East, um, in, in some regard. And also the movie and this one, I had just viewed recently again, um, because I had, had, um, seen, uh, an, an interview with Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren played, um, Ivan Drago in Rocky four. So, uh, Rocky Four was, you know, Rocky versus the the Russian Ivan Drago, um, and Dolph Lundgren was twenty eight, and I think it was like his first big movie role at that time. Um, and so, any anyway, I mean, you watch that movie, and it, it it certainly is is very much just portraying, um, you know, America against the U.S. in in the eighties. I mean, even to the fact that they had a pseudo Gorbachev, you know, the Russian, you know, leader Gorbachev, um, you know, portrayed in this, um, and, and how, how Rocky somehow, you know, through his, his grit and, and determination and willpower is over, is able to overcome this, um, you know, what seemingly would be a superior, unable to defeat opponent. Um, and, yeah, it's really strange to watch that because obviously that movie was designed to, you know, help propagate, um, the American, you know, position of preserving 
the country and, you know, you know, using tax dollars, supporting military efforts during the Cold War, um, and portraying, you know, Russia as, you know, cause I, Ivan Drago, you know, they're showing Rocky training, um, out in some farmhouse, you know, lifting rocks and chopping down trees and running through like heavy snow and like Siberia or somewhere. And Drago's like running on an indoor track and getting steroids and all this stuff. I mean, it's just so stereotyped, but, um, but I can tell you, I, I think every man, okay, <laughs> I'll just speak from the man perspective on this, but every man who left the theater after watching Rocky Four, you know, in the 80s, um, like you'd be invincible. You would think you're invincible for probably like, you know, at least a few hours. I mean, you walk out of there. Um, and even today, when I train, I will play. When I say train, I mean, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing, you know, some bench presses or things like that, like I'll throw on the Rocky four fight, uh, montage and which is like 10 minutes long. And it, you know, it's got all of the, uh, you know, powerful music and, and the announcers and all of that stuff. And, uh, and I'll kind of let that go for that 10 minutes, you know, if I'm doing bench presses or something like that, because, you know, Kind of fires me up a little bit, just the effect it's supposed to have. Um, but yeah, so Rocky for every man leaves the theater thinking like, I, I can go out there and, and I can do anything. You know, the problem is that boost is tempered quickly by reality, just as these videos, you know, these faint Frank Capra videos during World War II, the propaganda of like, you know, again, the why we fight video series. Um, and again, we just, we, we know those things don't last. They, they get you, um, you know, they would get people, these 18 year olds into recruitment offices and, and they would, they would also see, um, you know, hopefully not only their purpose, but then, you know, the, the glorified, the medals, the ribbons, the things like that. So, so yeah, like I can leave Rocky and I can maybe go to rec league basketball that night and think I'm going to be awesome and score like 25 points. And, and then after, you know, my second turnover two minutes into the game, I realize, Hey, that's, that's done. Um, but, uh, let's, so let's talk about, um, the theme of this. So what one, one question. Okay. So again, we started, we started this out. What one question predicts emotional breakdown better than any other question? So these are the questions that they ask. Um, Again, let's talk about World War II when they're they're, um, having military recruits and they're asking them. I mean, they're asking them all kinds of questions like, do you you bite your fingernails? Like 17% said yes and stuff like that, you know. But later studies determined that the single question asked at induction, do you want to be in the service? Do you want to be in the service? Predicted actual emotional breakdown better than any other. Okay. That one question, do you want to be in the service? Negative responses heralded subsequent mental disorder. So basically, if you said, yeah, I want to be here, um, and you're, and, and your response wasn't, well, if I have to go, I have to go or whatever, or that you had to be convinced. And I was like, do you want to be in the service? If it's yes, that, um, was a, a better, uh, predictor, um, of how people would do, um, as, as far as emotional endurance during the war. So interesting. That one question. So really, I mean, if you're answering no to that and you're giving reasons, the likelihood is those negative responses were going to manifest and you weren't going to do well on, on the battlefield. Um, so, so we talked about John Apple. At that time, he was a young psychiatrist and he opted to be attached to the Fifth Army. So the process during World War One and World War Two was if you would have battle fatigue or quote-unquote shell shock, um, in modern day we would say post-traumatic um, stress injury, you would then go to a hospital and receive treatment. What actually John Apple did was one of the first psychiatrists to get out in the field, attach himself to that Fifth Army in World War II, 
um, the Fifth Army um, started, and you start to get the data, and they had this metric of what's called aggregate combat days, aggregate combat days, or ACD, aggregate combat days. So basically, like how many days um, aggregate would be total that you had been in combat. Um, and this is really important is, as we get into this in, a, in a, the next minute. How many days could someone sustain themselves in combat? And the 5th Army was very much an overfought army in North Africa and Sicily. So if you were in the 5th Army um, in, in that campaign in North Africa and Sicily, it was really, really challenging. So uh, Dr. Apple found that the number of aggregate combat days uh, for that fifth for the fifth army was 238 and after 238 days so you're talking per soldier okay so if you're a soldier you're in the infantry you are in that fifth army in north africa and sicily after 238 days nobody nobody's left or you know they're 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 dead. Here, so here's basically what happens. After 238 days, aggregate combat days, you're either a physical casualty, you're a prisoner of war, or you're a psychiatric casualty. So the other point is everybody has a breaking point. Everybody has a breaking point. Um, and, and there were not exceptions really to this rule. There weren't exceptions to this rule. And 238 was like the top. I mean, it, once you got up around over 200, your your likelihood of, of either physical casual POW or psychiatric casualty is very, very high. But, you know, that the, the peak you could kind of, you know, get to what was was 238. I mean, if... Um, so anyway, what, what did we learn? Everyone is finite, and sooner or later, the system will break. You can have guys that have held up magnificently, and they just get to the point where the voltage in the batteries is gone. So the other thing was, um, you know, if you're 25 years old and you've been in uh, combat for a couple of years, uh, that was ancient. Uh, 25-year-olds would say things, and, and they would call it the old Sarge syndrome. And again, old Sarge could be 25 years old. Uh, so imagine a 25-year-old saying um, to the psychiatrist, saying, you know what? I'm the last old man left in my platoon. And there's only two of us old men left, and they're no better off than I am. You'll be seeing them soon. Wow. Dr. Edward A. Strecker um, served as a frontline psychiatrist in World War I. And he said a lesson learned there. So now we're, we're Going back to World War, World War One, um, was that whereas in peacetime abnormal men uh, break down um, from normal stress, in wartime normal men break down from abnormal stress. So let's let's talk about that one more time. So basically, in World War One, uh, Doctor Strucker saying. A lesson that they learned was in peacetime, abnormal men. So let's say, um, you know, with schizophrenia, bipolar, whatever it might be, you know, the diagnosis back at, in, in, you know, the, the time of World War One would have been much different than what it is today. Um, but, um, abnormal men break down from normal stress, you know, could be just going, um, the different chores that you have to do if you're on a farm or if you're in a factory or whatever, family stress. But in wartime, normal men, you know, you're talking, you know, farmers, factory workers, uh, people that had, you know, worked in schools, whatever, break down from abnormal stress. What is ab abnormal stress? You know, it's having shells, you know, bursting around you um, and, and getting to the point where you, um, every crack of a branch, you know, has your eyes wide open because you think it could be, um, you know, an enemy looking to kill you. So, um, yeah, a, a big, a big difference, a big difference there. So, 
I had a discussion with Dr. Paul Rapp. And let me tell you doc, about Dr. Paul Rapp. Um, I, I learned about um, Dr. Rapp first by watching a Nova special on chaos theory and made contact with him. And he has, he has a, first of all, a phenomenal depth of credentials. And let me give those to you right now, just because I, I think this is important. Um, as, as I t- tell you more about my discussion with Dr. Paul Rapp. So he is the director of traumatic injury research, uh, program, the department with the Department of Defense, Uniform Services University. Um, you know, so he is, he's worked in, in this capacity of studying, um, you know, the, the psychiatric, um, aspects and traumatic injury aspects of military for decades. Um, and it really is, is one of the best in, in the world. Um, Dr. Rapp said to me, he said, Dave, you know, the ideal profile of a modern combat soldier, a modern combat soldier today would be someone about age 40, you know, good physical condition and with advanced education. He said, that's actually, that's really good. You know, if we, if you're in a battle, you want somebody out there that has that profile. You want a number of people out there that have that, that profile, um, because they're typically going to be able to process very well what's going on around them. And they have, um, a pretty high, you know, survival and effectiveness rate. Now that's really interesting. Um, you know, because we know during World War, World War One, you know, I'm talking about these 17, 18, 19 year olds that they get into combat. And if for some reason you can make it to 25, I mean, you have so many medals and ribbons, you know, that, um, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's adding another 10 pounds, uh, you know, to your, to your wardrobe. Um, just the fact that you survive so many things in such a short amount of time. But this is very relative to on 9-11-2001, the Lord Manhattan Boat Rescue. Dr. Rapp and I talked about some factors that made that rescue very effective. Uh, the fact that 500,000 people were, were evacuated in nine hours. Um, how did that happen? And part of part of what contributed to that, that I think um, you know that Dr. Rapp and I both agree on, was uh, you know we looked at at the I should say I looked at the demographics and Dr. Rapp had some awareness already of the demographics, but the the a, a number of people who were rescued in that five hundred thousand now you know they're working that financial district, um, so they're right around age forty. Uh, whether they're in good physical condition or not, it's hard to say. But obviously, if you're commuting in and out and just the health of people today, um, you know, you'd say if you're 40, you know, probably pretty good, pretty good condition for what you would have needed to do for your um, being participant, a participant in a rescue on 9-11. And they would have had advanced education. So you would have had enough of those people present to bring order to that um, situation that they would have maintain their cognitive processing and their conscious processing of, okay, you know, I need to get to the harbor, you know, it's a battery park and, you know, I'm going to wait in line and eventually, you know, it's going to be my turn to get on a boat and I'm going to get out of here. Um, so very, very fascinating that, you know, we look today and as, as Dr. Rapp was saying, you know, you want out on that battlefield, you you want some soldiers, you know, who are around that age forty mark with um, advanced education. That's a very stabilizing. Um, I, it has a very stabilizing impact on your fighting force. So, um, let's talk. Let's think about. Let's think about that and. Um, You know, I, I don't know how that exactly relates to, you know, um, post-traumatic stress injury. Um, I, cause it, it, it kind of seems counterintuitive. You know, I just said, well, you know, if you've been in, 
you know, for so long in the military that you only have so many aggregate combat days and, and you probably have some cumulative stress, um, that, a, um, injury that's going to be taking place. But, but actually, um, what we see today is, is different kind of than what, what we had seen during World War or two. I guess we're seeing a more, um, uh, for age, we're seeing a, a, a mix with an older population of soldiers. When I say older, you know, I'm saying in the forties, well, you know, or age 40, probably mirroring a little bit more toward maybe what was back in the civil war versus what was back in world, world war one, uh, maybe world war two. So, um, anyway, you know, remember that 238 number? Aggregate combat days that I talked about. If you made it to the the, the two thirty eight, you you were almost guaranteed that you were a um, you were a physical casualty, prisoner of war, or psychiatric um, casualty. So a subsequent survey found that the medical and line officers were in unanimous agreement that by the time a man had served two hundred to two hundred and forty aggregate days of combat, he was ineffective. Okay. So again, um, if he had not quote unquote cracked up, he was so jittery under shell fire and so overly cautious that in addition to being ineffective as a soldier, he demoralized the newer men. So if you're coming into this, imagine, you know, you're a, a new soldier deployed, um, at the time of, of, of world war, to in this 238 number, you know, kind of still hold this. We're saying this still holds true today, but imagine you're, you're being deployed and someone has had 200, you know, days of, of aggregate um, combat, meaning that that every day, you know, there, there's mortars and and you know, you you have to be hyper vigilant because you're you're basically under attack every day. Um, so. But I mean, you might have some breaks within that, but 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 for the most part, you know, you you have you have this two hundred aggregate days of 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 combat. Once you hit that, you're you're ineffective um, because yeah, you get fairy jitter. It's, imagine coming in and seeing that, like you're coming in and you're looking at the people um, who have participated, you know, for a year or two in battle, and and they are are just um, just just a mess. I mean, that has got to destroy your confidence. Um, it was fascinating during the 9-11 rescue that once the rescuers, uh, the firemen largely, you know, you come to the Twin Towers and there's nothing you can do, um, you know, at, at the point of once you had, you know, your collapse and so forth and, and you have firefighters and they are are basically sitting down. I mean, at that time, the situation is, is still, I mean, it's very unstable. You can't just rush in and start pulling, you know, debris out and, and things like that. I mean, now you have to have a coordinated effort of, of structural engineers coming in telling you where you can go, where you can't go. And, and, um, and once you, once people saw firefighters and, and this, I have this from, somebody that I spoke to who personally interviewed firefighters um, that, that responded to 9-11. And, and once you had firefighters who would, you know, take off their, their gear and sit because there wasn't anything at that moment they could, they could do um, that if, if you're there watching that, it's like, Oh my goodness. Um, what does this mean for me? And, and then people really became anxious and demoralized because I mean, here you see the firefighters and there's nothing that they can, they can do. Not that they didn't do, um, tons because they obviously did. But again, once the buildings collapse, you have to step, step, you know, back and have a perimeter. And now you have to have structural engineers come in and, and you just can't rush firefighters back in to, to that because you don't, um, you don't know what you're, you know, you're dealing with, um, as far as, you know, their personal safety. So, um, but yeah, if you watch that, I mean, you're used to seeing firefighters. I, I had a friend, let me, let me bridge a story off a little bit. I had a friend who had, um, uh, his barn burned down a few years ago and lost a number of cattle. 
And, uh, and I remember, um, you know, he, he waited and his family, you know, for the fire department to arrive. Um, and when the fire department arrived, um, they wouldn't, uh, you know, do much to suppress the fire because there were still live electrical cables on the property. And this was so demoralizing for my friend and for his family. And, and they actually, um, you know, would, they, they went and manually shut off some of these power lines, but still until the power company said it was safe, which was the complete correct protocol for the fire department. But you can see these resources there to try to help out. And yet you can't access these resources because the, the situation hasn't been secured. Um, so, you know, so what, what helped? So you talk about these soldiers, what helped? Um, you have this 200, 200 day f- that you could be in combat. And, and then after that, you know, it, it was, you, you were either, you know, headed quickly toward, um, you know, physical casualty, um, prisoner of war or psychiatric casualty. So what helped, you know, and it wasn't money. It wasn't money. What helped is this is, this is strange folks, but, um, a few things. One is they set the completed tour of duty to 100 aggregate days, and then they gave points for rotation. Um, so if you're close to the fighting, you get more points. And you're rotated out. So if you're in the States, it used to be like if you're in the States and if you were actually at the front, you kind of got the same points, which wasn't fair, you know, obviously. Um, and, and they changed that, so they made it up to 180 days. So finally, uh, soldiers could, could also see an end Otherwise, it was just like, I'm going to be here until, you know, one of these th- three things happens, a physical casualty, a POW, or psychiatric casualty. So the 180 days are earning your points. The other thing, think about this. There was a special big blue patch given to infantry soldiers that they wore, um, which signified that you were an infant. It was a badge of honor. It, it was a marker of honor. And, you know, you, you have things like that today. The whole video game industry is built about earning levels and badges and, and points. And actually they go to that in schools and so many industries and things like that. Um, but people really, really get into this psychologically of earning these, these badges, these, these tokens. Um, and, and this did, did a lot for the infantry, infantry soldiers. It actually got to the point where soldiers and other combat units, such as artillery, wanted these badges for themselves. Military was saying, no, they're for the infantry. And if you want one, transfer it to the infantry. Some did just for that. Um, so yeah, giving that big blue patch. Um, and, and what that then meant to those infant, infantry soldiers. I mean, it was, uh, it was this marker of honor. So I think there's something very fundamental here to what, uh, humans perceive as badges. And we've seen that too in like, um, how schools, um, retain teachers, you know, giving them different kind of, uh, you know, quote unquote, even, you know, badges or levels of uh, attainment and, um, even pins to wear and things like that. Um, I, I've seen totally irrational motivators, okay, in schools, for example, such as a traveling trophy of a stuffed animal, which might be the school mascot. And it can go around, you know, every month um, to somebody that has done something deemed, um, you know, exceptional or whatever. And how people will work and, and do and promote themselves and, and, you know, or, or, you know, once, once they get that, you know, how it is this kind of puffing up of the, the chest or whatever for this recognition. And I'm not saying this is necessarily bad, but the reality is it's just, it's, 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 uh, it's just, it's a traveling trophy. I mean, it means it has no intrinsic value. It means nothing. There's no extrinsic value. I mean, maybe it has intrinsic value, but it means nothing. It's just like the patch. It means nothing. The metals. It means it means nothing. Um, so, but there is this very strong laminating effect, meaning that you laminate your identity to these external things. Like someone who says, "Like I am an engineer." Tell me about yourself. And someone says, "I am an engineer at Boeing." That's different than saying. Um, I enjoy hiking and I really, 
um, and into, you know, science and physics. And, um, I also, you know, I've got uh, two kids and, and I work at Boeing. Well, right there, I mean, you've talked a lot about yourself and your interests and things like that versus like, I am an engineer at Boeing. So this laminating, people laminating to their their identities. And I think I talked about it in an earlier podcast, but it's not uncommon for, you know, someone who's been at a work, um, you know, in a work position for a number of years that if they get laid off from that position or terminate from that position, transferred, whatever, uh, they can have a psychological breakdown um, or even an attempt or complete suicide. It, it, it's happened on a pretty regular basis. Um so, um, I, I think it's important to know if you're being manipulated by, by something that is essentially meaningless. So if someone, you know, gives me, um, you know, a, a certain, uh, badge to wear or whatever, um, because I'm, I don't, you know, like if I get the podcasting, you know, badge of honor or whatever, um, in, in, I, I, I don't know. I've never been, you know, like you can look and back me. I, you know, I have a, a doctoral degree from University of Madison, which I'm proud of for the fact that I put a ton of rigor into that, really pushed myself and got to work with an exceptional faculty of world class professionals that pushed me, um, to, to learn more about myself than I think I ever knew I was capable of doing. Um, but, but the degree itself, that piece of paper doesn't define me. You're not going to see it in the back. You're going to see some changes back there because I'm updating. But, um, but no, I don't need that to define me. You know, I don't need that to, de- to define me. But, but the psychological effect of laminating people, and this still happens today, um, you know, with, with certain badges and, and, and things like that, that the military has found very, very effective, especially with younger, with younger, uh, recruits. So, um, from a medical viewpoint, okay, this is from the, the article, the John Apple article. From the, the uh, medical viewpoint, the most exciting event that had, uh, or the, the most exciting event had been the discovery that every man had a breaking point. So it wasn't that you had this internal psychological defect if you somehow had a break, if you broke down. The fact was every man had a breaking point. All of us, you and I, everybody has a breaking point. Everybody has a breaking point. Doesn't matter. This had not been previously known to psychiatry or to anyone. So this is rather new. You know, World War One, World War Two. the fact that everybody has a, a breaking point. Um, and, and looking at this differently, and I go back to how President uh, Bush, um, you know, works with uh, post-traumatic um, uh, stress injury, you know, that everybody has has this, this breaking point. So... Um, and I see that too in, in work that I do as a critical instant debriefer. But what an evolution that we've made as a society to look at things differently here in the last, um, you know, 50, 60 years as a defect within the person. If there was a, a psychiatric breakdown, um, to the fact that everybody, um, uh, everybody has a breaking point. And it, it, it's not that you somehow got through screen. No, everybody has it. And you get to that 238 days of aggregate combat. That's, that's it. So thank you for listening to the Safety Doc Podcast. Listen on the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. Um, show is available YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe. You can follow me at SafetyPhD on Twitter, at SafetyPhD. Visit www.safetyphd.com safetyphd.com to learn more about me and the shows. We do one show per week and lately I've been a guest on a number of shows. Please check out, please subscribe. Thank you very much.